This episode of Untold Stories is sponsored by Yield and Cosmos. Stick around to hear more about them later in this episode. What is up, everyone? I am Charlie Schramm, and you are listening and watching Untold Stories with special two special guests today, where twice a week we get to dive deep with some of crypto's most influential leaders, the brightest crowns in the box, the smartest people in the room, the people that are one egg addition in addition to a, a dozen. Uh, I keep saying these like terms, like basically how specific people I believe are able to like harness their brain capacity a little bit better than, than the average person. Like my, like, like, so like I'm the average and then I'm having people on this show that are, have that ability to think a little bit greater. So you look at like folks like Elon Musk and then all the guests of the past 167 episodes. Uh, I don't think there's one show that I don't learn anything. Um, and so before I get into it, uh, we wouldn't be here today without blockworks.co. They're a media and production company that I trust the most. They're my best friends. Uh, without them, this podcast wouldn't be here today. Make sure you check them out. News, media, other podcast events at blockworks.co. And with that, I am so proud and honored to introduce two people who I consider some of the closest friends that I have today. I'm going to start with you, my friend, Phil Lebowski. Phil, you are, you're trading right now. You run a concierge trading desk for many, many years. Um, there's not many people who understand the mechanics of what's going on behind the scenes on a day-to-day -day basis. When there's something going on in crypto, you and I are the first people to start talking about like what the hell's going on. And my other dear friend, Steve Capone. Oh my God, Steve, you are the reason that this podcast is even here today. And we'll tell that story in a moment. But now you're the VP of marketing for Fidelity Digital Assets. Previously, you were the chief marketing officer at Voyager Digital, one of my uh, best investments uh, because of you, actually, and you got me to be uh, to be working there, and I got to be part of that er the early days in that company. Thank you. Uh, and you were a senior strategist at, uh, at Microsoft. And so it's safe to say that you know how to think. And speak, perhaps, <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. No, this is Thanks, this is really, 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 really great. Um, have you guys? And we're all friends. Yeah. yeah we're, yes, we're, we are. No, but like, I want to go back for a second and 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 tell that story. Um, why don't you tell the story from from your end, like how you were introduced to me, and then I want to tell the story, Steve, of how this podcast came to be. Yeah, yeah, and I'll I'll first say that you always give me too much credit on this. I think uh, I I just maybe connected some dots, um, which arguably when you say that you know I know how to think and speak, I don't know. I think so much of like my work is connecting dots. Sure, sure. Um, so you know, you and I met in in the early days when I was working. You know, I was um, the first real full time employee at Voyager um, after the founders had an idea to to bring this crypto broker to market and uh you know i've since moved on joined the team at fidelity but um you know so proud of what that team has done and in the early days as we were you know piecing the company together looking you know to bring the appropriate advisors in build the team just through some connections in the industry we were introduced 
And, you know, as you said, we were kind of kindred spirits. We were on a call with, I don't know, half a dozen other people. Yeah. It was like one of those calls where it just became you and I just talking. Yeah. <laughs> and like everyone else drowned out. And it, and it became very clear that like, okay, these guys, they're going to figure things yeah. out together. And we like, develop, we, you know, we Meanwhile, developed it's a like two of us like young like kids basically like yeah. like brainstorming and strategizing a billion dollar company here you know yeah yeah absolutely so so um you know it started as um you know i think a friendship between the two of us and always looking for ways to get you more involved in voyager obviously your experience um with bit instant and i think you always talk about this so well as to kind of you know voyager being a crypto broker being like a new realized version of what yeah. what you were doing years back um so clearly kind of a lot of wisdom and experience from you and the voyager team and the board and the founders were really eager to bring that in and i was just kind of a you know a liaison of sorts just through our formed friendship to help do that so you know, you came in and joined as an advisor um, to the team and continued to get more involved as kind of we, um, you know, grew a, a professional relationship and a, a personal relationship and our families got to know each other, so on and so forth. Um, and, uh, you know, I think this was early on before you started um, sort of building yourself as more of a, dare I say, media personality. Mm. Um uh, maybe you always were one, but now more officially with, with your own control. You, you were the kind of like, I remember talking to you about starting a podcast and you were having beers with my executive producer, Jason Janowitz. And both of you had to take a chance on me because, uh, at that time I was going through the crazy, like Winklevoss litigation or whatever. And it ended up like, I guess when a door closes, another one opens and out of ashes rises the Falcon or whatever. And so I needed that down and fighting, defending myself in order to like start this show and that gave it the, the whole moxie. So thank you for doing that. And then I just thought that we would like hang out and work together in Voyager. And we did for a few months. And the next thing I know, you're moving over, you, you cross the line over to the institutional side. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And by the way, like, I think the, you know, uh, it was true. I was sitting there having beers with Jason. You and I just spoke about it. And I very much operate under this, like, good people should know good people. Yeah. We both think super highly of the Blockworks team. And, and, um, and, you know, Phil, like, throw you in that mix, right? That's all I think why Charlie introduced us and right. just good, good people should know good people. But yeah, Charlie, just to circle back on that. So I, um, I left Voyager, um, uh, you know, nothing more than like a super positive experience. Um, for me, it was a bit of a life change. I spent half a dozen years in more kind of entrepreneurial startup land, had my own consulting practice. That, that's actually how I met the Voyager team and helping bring that business to market before I joined full time. And then I would say predominantly for, predominantly for personal reasons, but also wanting to get more exposure to the institutional side of finance and the institutional side of crypto. And, uh, uh, decided to join um, the team at Fidelity Digital Assets to lead uh, to lead marketing there, and you know, little did I know it would somewhat turn into the year of institutional crypto. Yeah, and, uh, I can't I can't take all the credit for that, but I, I will take credit for for maybe good good time accidental good timing. As you were like texting me that you were that you were moving over, uh, and we were talking about it, I was like in the, one of the last Fidelity branches with my brother in law because he was trying to like sell his 401k to buy Bitcoin. And I was actually the one there convincing him not to do it because like, 
I, I, I'm all about having a big percentage of your net worth in crypto, but I'm also not about speculating with your rent either. And so, you know, he, I, he ended up hybrid listening. He ended up taking the money out, but starting his own business, investing in your personal capital. Cause now he started a company that he can invest in Bitcoin every single week. There you go. Yeah. It's, it's brilliant. Phil, you and I met, uh, four years probably ago? four years yeah. ago in, in, in the trading world. Um, that's true. Um, I actually only met you in person two years ago, but we've known each other almost five. Um, Oh, you have a lot of friends like that. Yeah. 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 I guess these days everyone does. Those are the best friends, though. (laughs) That's the nature of crypto. Um, You know, a lot of my friends are WhatsApp only. Uh, We're we're slowly moving over to Signal and Telegram. But um, it's true. Uh, There's a lot of friends that I've never met in person. Um, But Charlie, definitely I'm happy that I'm here now in Sarasota with you, helping out with some of these podcasts. Yeah. Um, And if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't be where I am today with our concierge trading service that we provide in Canada. That's awesome. We've excelled for sure. You've over the years, you've uh, uh, really like taken hold and allowed a lot of companies that that need to be buying into crypto and buying out of you know selling out of it. You've provide and the pre Fidelity days. So now, like Fidelity sure. as an institution is looking at kind of doing concierge. Actually, yeah, doing concierge trading like the next on a professional level is the way it should be. Sure. Not to say that you're not professional. Uh, with concierge trading and how it all started, I remember a lot of it largely is done on things like uh, WhatsApp and chat rooms and, sure. and emails, and it's fast. Like you can get you can get things done. You can move quickly. So you guys are both, and I have a great question for both of you. Uh, you guys are both servicing like very different types of clients, but you're both having to operate on chain. And so here's kind of like a question. We're, I'm using DeFi. You guys are using DeFi. You're playing with Ethereum. I'm playing with Ethereum. We're all having fun. Ethereum is going all through... All paying crazy gas fees. That's exactly my question. So <laughs> right now, Ethereum is going through a, this scaling issue that Bitcoin went through and Bitcoin had solved. Will... So now, like, I'm paying crazy gas fees all the time using Uniswap, 60 to $150 a mm-hmm. transaction, and it's, it's insane. Will Ethereum continue to lose market share and I want both of you guys to answer this because you you are using all these chains and you are interacting with clients. You're both helping with custody. You're interacting more than, than I am. Do you think that other chains are actually gaining market shares realistically or really it's still just Bitcoin and Ethereum and everything else is speculation? Steve, do you want to, you want to go first? <clears throat> um I mean, Bitcoin and Ethereum are still the most dominant in, in my view. Um, you can see that, especially this week when Bitcoin takes a tumble and Ethereum follows and you look at my entire portfolio, it all moved literally the same amount of percentages. Um, but I think that with the delay with Ethereum 2.0, it just gives an opportunity for other networks like Cardano, Polkadot. Um, those are the two that I'm eyeing uh, to take more of a dominant stance. Um, I do hope Ethereum prevails with 2.0, but right now I'm focusing on other projects and platforms. People are using like like Bitcoin as the store of value and you're holding on to like USDC and USDT as store of value, but are people holding on to ETH as a long-term store of value? I, 
I think currently, yes, because everyone is anticipating a pump, which is a speculative decision. Mm -hmm. But in the long term, I don't see that being the case. Um, I actually don't even see Bitcoin as a good store of value because of its volatility. Uh, my good store of value is Tether or USDC. Yeah. yeah. Um, I never understood why people said Bitcoin has a good store of value when it fluctuates 20% a day. Yeah. Well, so I think about it a little bit differently. Um, Traditionally speaking, right, a, a, a store of value uh, has, you know, aligns with different attributes of money um, and is typically a good hedge, uh, at times a hedge against inflation. So there, like there are, um, look at gold, right, in the history of gold and how it's been used in portfolios by investors. Um, and what you're looking for in a store of value, in particular these days in the global macro environment that we're in, um, you know, is that attribute of digital scarcity that Bitcoin brings to the table. And I think it's very clear what happened throughout 2020 and the institutional interest in Bitcoin. And it is because of that 21 million attribute and that certainty around that scarcity. I don't think that exists with Ethereum, right, as, as, as we all know. So... Um, in, you know, I don't think that just in my personal experience and just my studying of the space, we're seeing that demand from major investors or, you know, Ethereum may be a great trade, right? Like to your point, Phil, like, and, and Bitcoin's a great trade. Um, but in terms of a place to store value, um, I, I haven't seen Ethereum really kind of looked at in that way. I look at it as, um, somewhat of a venture capital investment. And by the way, many people look at Bitcoin as a venture capital investment, exactly. right? It can be many things to many people. It can be a payments and remittance technology. It could be a venture, uh, it, uh, it could play a role in a portfolio um, and uh, certainly just be a store of value, uh, in particular, uh, a hedge uh, against deflation, a response to monetary policy. Uh, I, th I look at Ethereum more as like, hey, there is a entire new operating system to finance. And this potentially is the underbelly to that. Charlie, to your point about, They've had scaling issues. How much of a problem is that? Um, it's a problem, like, of, of course. I think there's such a long history and a developer base against Ethereum now. Like, yeah. they, they really have created quite a gap that obviously they, they need to resolve some of these issues from a scale standpoint and move more rapidly to Ethereum 2.0. I do think they have some runway. You talk about like a this being a VC investment when, when typically, typically when investors invest in something, they give it like a five-year horizon. They don't want like, so these come, so micro strategies owns 90,000 Bitcoins, uh, crazy amounts, you know, um, and a lot of other companies have put on his balance sheets as well. Uh, five-year horizon. Are they, are they, are these companies or folks that are investing in, in Ethereum or Bitcoin or whatever, are they looking at this as, they just want it to appreciate against the dollar better or like so a hedge or they're actually looking to to make money on on this. I think both. Right. Um, I think the former is the primary use case. And and I think it's important to separate the two things um, uh, around like this time. Right. You know, the, the normal VC portfolio and appreciation of that portfolio being, say, five to 10 years potentially more depending on the technology sector. I don't 
think, and, and I don't, you know, want to speculate every single institutional investor. We can point to some things that say, like Michael Saylor has said publicly, right? Um, cl clearly the most aggressive um, uh, in, uh, from a corporate balance sheet standpoint, he's, he's quite proud of it. Um, you know, he talks about owning like for a hundred years and he, you know, refers to wow. cash being kind of a melting ice cube. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know if that's hyperbole or not, but I think it, it points to, um, it points to his mindset. And I think most institutional investors, just in my um, personal observation and kind of what's been stated publicly are not really looking at this as a venture investment. In fact, a lot of these companies have venture arms, right? Mm. So, so if you take any you know, public company or private company that wants to participate in Bitcoin or other crypto assets, if they were looking at it as a venture investment, um, it's fair to say uh, they maybe would look to a venture part of their, of their firm, a, a venture fund that they may have. Um, Obviously, some you know, venture is all about alpha and return on investment. Um, balance sheet investments play a different role. They either play a strategic role. Uh, when we look at Square, right, yeah, they yeah. pointed that out. Yeah. Um, but um, I think this is more about, to your point, the hedge against inflation um, and more of the economic. What are some good balance sheet investments? Like, what is that? What does that term mean? Yeah, I mean, this this ventures into an area where I wouldn't like, I'm not a corporate treasurer. So, yeah. um, so I can just go by what, you know, I'm, I'm, I like to somewhat play to your point. I'm a thinker and like to somewhat be like a naive marketer. Right. I love that. Marketing yeah. is my trade. And I, I'm pretty naive to these things. And I just like you, I, I, I read Twitter, I read content and, and just draw my own um, observations, dots. but in particular, like in my observations, um, Balance sheet investments, you know, typically are things that come as a corp, like a corporate business development invest investment, M&A type of investments. They typically play a strategic role for the firm, whereas a venture capital investment is more about alpha return. Yeah, exactly. right. That that is the strategy to return capital. It doesn't have to be strategically aligned uh, with the goals of the company. You take a a, a, a business like Square. Um, they have a or PayPal. Yeah. Um, uh, not to say that PayPal has has, has put um, Bitcoin on the balance sheet, but they, they have a strategic play with these particular assets. There's uh, clearly their business. It's um, their business you know. model. Yeah. Yeah. So there's all these different type of, of folks that are that are either investing in whatever VC balance sheet type of investments as a currency, as a hedge against the world. There's all different reasons for everything now. Phil, are you seeing the same type of thing? Most definitely. Um, we're seeing everyone except for pension funds really being interested in it. Uh, I've had calls from family funds, um, VCs specifically more so than anything because of the speculative nature of the investments. Um, the balance sheet strategies I personally don't understand. Like, for example, in the case of Tesla and Elon Musk, I'm not sure what the strategy is there. It seems to be more of a PR play than anything. Um, but... Back to the store of value, I think that's when you're going to see retirement funds and pension funds buying yeah. big blocks and putting that away in the vault. Um, I still see it as a speculative investment, and I don't know how long it's going to last. I mean, I'm very bullish on Bitcoin, but again, I don't see the store of value argument prevailing. Over the long term, yeah, yeah. interesting. DeFi, 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 you keep hearing me talk about it, and we know at the same time that the stock market is at record highs, but the economy is broken in recession, government debt is off the charts, they're printing trillions of dollars. 
we need a new financial system and I've been talking about it. We've all been talking about it. Decentralized finance. We know that too. We know that there's like $40 billion in value sitting in all these DeFi protocols and it's barely a year old it's new decentralized finance and it's brilliant and it works and there's a lot of money to be made in things like yield farming being able to provide liquidity but a lot of them are high risk there's scams and rug pulls that are so common to investors we don't want to repeat what happened a few years ago in the crypto space but what if there was a way to access those DeFi yields in a safe and transparent way. Well, I had the CEO, Tim Frost, of Yield.app, my newest sponsor on the show. Listen to that show and check out Yield.app because here you have this team that is constantly filtering through all these DeFi investments. They're consolidating your gas fees and they're only investing in a select few that generate more than 20%. But their risk is not, they're not just investing in these tokens and waiting for them to do well. They're also providing liquidity. They're doing yield farming. All these low risk, high investment to make the uh, infrastructure more efficient and better. So not only you're investing in making money, but you're also helping to grow this ecosystem. Make sure you check them out at yield.app. That's yield.app. And listen to the untold stories with Tim Frost, the CEO. We have all these coins and tokens and they sit on all these different blockchains and we have to keep multiple wallets and different addresses and everything. And the only way to do it without having to do that is trust a centralized place like an exchange or a broker or an app that you use. Well, what if there was a way to do it without having to trust one different place in the ethos of crypto? Cosmos, my sponsor Cosmos that has been around for so long. They're actually following their original roadmap and being able to offer universal wallet, high node synchronization, inter-blockchain communication, bridging Bitcoin and Ethereum together and keeping it all on one wallet, being able to build on top of it and do the coolest things possible. Make sure you check them out at stargate.cosmos.network. That's cosmos.stargate.network. You can play with all these different features. It's so cool, and it's really bringing the next wave of crypto and adoption. If you really want to be ahead of everyone else and all your friends, make sure you understand the new technology that's coming out. Stargate.cosmos.network. You're going to love it. I was re uh, To read you a quote by um, Michael Saylor, he said, if you want to preserve value, you have to hold scarce assets. Bitcoin is the most liquid, scarce, uncorrelated asset you can buy. Before Bitcoin existed, what, what, what were other super liquid, scarce, uncorrelated assets? Are there any? I, th I think you brought in an attribute there that makes that question hard to answer. I'm sure there, there may be. Which though. one? Which attribute? Super liquid. Super liquid. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I mean, real, like, you know, uh, real estate. As you real know, Charlie, like tends to be a good store of value, uh, or, or perceived as a good store of value um, from until investors. 2009. Uh, so the thing with real estate, currencies, I guess you know, we can time. use real estate as a good example to like explain efficient markets, right? You look at the price of your home; that's the price that you will get if you put in the maximum amount of work to sell your home. Maximum amount of work. You can have right now a wholesale buyer come and buy your house. You can close and have a check. Today, if you're willing to take 75%, 75% or even 60% of the dollar. So talk about efficient. If there was a way to trade real estate in an efficient way on markets, you would never see situations like that. You'd be able to actually get the maximum value for your house to be able to, to, to sell percentages of your property and then have that tradable securitized against 
like a token or legal security where a token represents like equity in your home or whatever, that you can go into an app and instantly do it. To me, that's like some of the most interesting things that's happening in the space right now. What do you guys think are like some of the most interesting things? NFTs. <laughs> can you explain yeah. NFTs? Like I get <laughs> NFTs and I've been, I, I just, sometimes I'm so lost in the, like the long-term vision that I don't understand the short-term shit that's going on. Phil, do you get a kick at it when Charlie says this as someone who like was in so early and clearly had long-term vision? No, I really don't. Um, no, the NFTs, I don't understand at all, to be honest. Um, I've never invested. I've never even I think you guys it. understand it. You may not I, yeah, agree, but I, think I, I, get, I don't see it. this speculative, crazy value. I'm trying to understand what's going on here because like, some NFTs were like six. Yeah, they're like trading, like like NFTs that represent actual artwork. I I was I've, oh I own art that I have. It's immutable, and the fact that I own it is immutable on the blockchain. If I wanted to sell it, I could. But there's a physical something there that I think is valuable. So from what I understand with NFTs, is that digital artwork now has digital yeah. value scarce well, value yeah i mean i've been trying to spend more time lately and really dive into nfts and you're starting to see real prominent figures like gary vaynerchuk get really bullish on the space um uh, i think mark cuban has been quite vocal on it as well i know he sure. has on DeFi. um so let's unpack this a little bit more because i think you teed it up the right way charlie which is like talking about scarcity and store of value um you know we were talking about real estate and by the way like there are ways to own real estate through more liquid investment products, right? It yeah. may not be direct ownership. In the world of crypto, we tend to think a lot about direct custody and no keys, no coin, but um, just like you can access- So like Bitcoin Cadre through, or something like that, you can own fractional real estate. Cadre, but there are even just, there are, you know, ETFs and funds that, that uh, or you can invest in real estate companies. So th there are lots of ways to participate in that market and have real estate in your portfolio, right? If you are just, uh, I will preface this thing, this is not investment advice, sure. but yeah, if yeah, you, yeah. but if you, if, if, if you are an investor and looking, you know, you can't afford a whole home or commercial real estate, um, there are vehicles out there that enable you to access real estate in some way, shape, or form, different types of real estate, maybe server farms or things like that, um, real estate of your liking, commercial in particular, uh, in your portfolio. Um, but all that leads to different types of store of value. So art, I was going to name that as like, what are other stores of value? Art collectibles in general ha over time have been uh, particular stores of value. What's, what's really interesting going on that I think doesn't maybe get talked about enough, and I don't have all the data on this, but I've been, t I've been hearing a lot about it lately, is um, while we're seeing this rise of NFTs, and I think a lot of it is art, I, I was corrected recently in that not all NFTs is art, um, whether it's music, it's, oh, it's really not. is about this uniqueness and digital scarcity. Right. Um, a friend of mine is like really into baseball cards and basketball cards and stuff like that. And yes, there's interesting stuff going on with like NBA top shot and stuff like that. But at the same rate, and I think this is where like guys like Gary V are coming from. You know, I grew up like collecting baseball cards and stuff there. I think they're sitting in my parents' garage somewhere. And a friend said, Hey, you I should go card. get them mm. because they're now worth more like they're back again. And there's a lot of value in these like, mm -hmm. you know, sports card, collect baseball cards, basketball cards, who knows, maybe magic cards. I, I don't know. Right. But it's not coincidence that this is happening at the same time. 
right? It, this is a thematic, larger thematic. You're talking about a way to liquefy old baseball cards, though. Well, no, what, what someone was just, you know, you can like literally go on eBay now and sell now. analog baseball cards and basketball cards for more than they have been in a very long time. Like, so oh. let's just like take out our crypto world for a second, right? It's like, very hard to just, do. <laughs> I know, I know it's so hard, but that an, that analog market, right, um, of collectibles that a lot of us is, is like when we were young and not mm. to say it's a young, but like tends to be when you when you get most interested, um, there has been a resurgence um, in that market again. And I think it points to this larger theme of owning things that are scarce, right? NFTs are digital scarcity. Uh, uh, Bitcoin is digital scarcity. Gold, bars of gold is a degree of analog scarcity, and baseball mm. cards are a degree of analog scarcity. It all f- falls under that thematic of scarcity. My Pokemon cards were stolen from my garage last year, and this year I noticed that they were going up for tens of thousands of dollars. So it is there is a big movement in these scarce art items, of course. Um, but I, I still, I, I don't know if it will last forever. I think as people were bored during the, the pandemic. You're, you're down. So like Steve and I kind of like, let's look at like crypto as a war. Oh, I don't like to actually to use that because I don't like violence. But like, let's just say this was a war without violence, which doesn't make any sense. Steve and I are like kind of like in the back theorizing with the glasses and we're like maps and shit like that. You're like in the trenches on day to day, which is why your perspective, not that you're not in the trenches, Steve. Uh you're Phil, like trading, uh, uh, with people directly and with companies directly, and right. and, and I know that uh, Steve and Fidelity, you, you guys are so massive right now. Uh, but I wanted to I wanted to get into scarcity, but don't let me forget, Steve, to ask you after, kind of like how you're what you're in a strategic way going to be able to set uh, Fidelity apart, and, and I know you've been working on that, uh, but you can answer that later. But I wanna I wanna really understand scarcity a little bit more and really unpack this further. What is it in the human psyche that makes us favor scarcity? Store of value. No, but like, forget crypto. Forget crypto for a second. Like, just... Think of an apocalyptic situation where the world goes to chaos, right? And I need to buy water or anything. Uh, I'm pretty sure my Pokemon card is not going to go far. Uh, But my my gold or things that are actually necessities potentially would, right? Um, so I kind of always seem to think in those extremes. Yeah, um, and, and I, I do too, to and, be and honest. I'm very sometimes. principled on that. So I, I wouldn't go and buy Pokemon cards or baseball cards right now because I don't see that store of value. And truth be told, I don't actually see store of value in the real estate market either because you know, 10 years ago we saw what can happen. Um, it's, only, it's only liquid until it's not. Um, while Bitcoin and most cryptocurrencies, I hope will be liquid forever. And it seems like what's the best way to protect sovereign wealth than like, you're not sovereign, your own personal empire. If you're someone who has, you know, is earning money and trying to like save it. Like, uh, you know, you look at all these different real estate things. Like what, what are your opinions on that? I, I, I seek this answer too. I don't know the answer. I don't buy investing in yourself, yourself is, is like, like I was, was going to, yeah, I'd be happy. You're, you're the best. Yeah. yeah. Be happy. Into, uh, I think knowledge. It, I think it depends on your investment thesis, right? Like, you know, uh, that that may be a, you know, an out of an answer, but sure. like clearly investors like 
Michael Saylor or CEOs, I should say, or a Paul Tudor Jones or some of these allocators, institutional allocators to Bitcoin, um, they have a thesis that um, inflation is actually higher than reported than, than, than that's represented in mm. consumer consumer inflation. Sure. Um, so they really cling to different stores of value that don't align with um, you know, particular fiat currencies as a store of value that are a hedge against that. So that, that said, there are a class of investors that don't agree with that, right? Or don't that maybe agree that Bitcoin is the answer to that, but they're gold bugs or whatever. So, sure. you know, like one of the things that I've learned so much in, you know, working just in financial services, having more exposure to a large financial firm is there is a really wide palette of investment theses, right? Depending on who you are, what your ba- just what your capital is, what your balance sheet is, what what your goals are. Like Charlie, your goals, my goals, and Phil's goals all are, are different, right? Right now, my family is concentrated on buying a new home and getting out of the city a little bit. And, yeah. you know, yours may be upgrading your studio or something like that, right? Like they're just, you know. I'm like actually really... downgrading, not like downgrading, but I'm, I feel like I got heavy over the years, not just physically weight wise, but just like in stuff. And I learned something very interesting about myself and so, stop to, sorry to interrupt you. Um, during the 2017 bubble, I bought a boat, Satoshi. Uh, we call it Satoshi, and we just sold it the other day. We just sold Satoshi after four years. You sold I Satoshi? I didn't know that. I did. We sold Satoshi, and we did it because I don't. I, first, of all, I was looking at this depreciating asset out my window every day, and like my whole life is just telling people <laughs> to like get out of these depreciating assets, and here I am just like owning one. But that was okay because when we sold it, I looked at my wife Courtney, and I was like, "Do you miss the boat?" And she said, no, I miss the experiences we had on it. Mm-hmm. We're not attached. And I'm, I didn't know this. We didn't know this about each other, Courtney and I, until now. We both aren't attached to things, but we're attached to experiences. So I don't like owning things. I lease my car. I don't, I don't like owning things. That's a very, very millennial outlook on life. Yeah. Interesting thought. Though. But then how do you invest in stuff when you're, you're like, like you lose sleep at night? Like, Steve, help me answer this. Like, I lose sleep at night because I feel feel the dollars going down in value second by second and like i'm just you know it's like deflating it's like you're constantly fighting a deflationary like value of your assets so you have to go into these assets that are not going to lose value as much as as much as the dollar will or whatever because we're told to save the dollar but the dollar like it's not just about you talk about inflation and i know i'm running off on rambling here but it's inflation is a government metric that to make us feel better about the world. But really, consu- you know, even the consumer price index, forget that, go to your coffee shop, create your own index, I tell people. Look at the Big Mac index. Take something that you're buying on a monthly basis and just remember what that costs over the course of years. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. In the peak of COVID, like just to play on that a little bit, in the in like the peak of COVID in New York City, you know, we're, we're, we're a meat-eating household. Uh, I was vegan for many years, but we're a meat-eating household. We eat a lot of meat. And like, I remember going out and shopping for just like some chicken to bring home. And the price of just like a pack of chicken breasts, I can't remember. It was something like $16.99 or $19.99. It was unreal. Yeah. Like it was $26 to buy two chicken breasts, which you could go out to a really nice restaurant and, and buy a whole buy chicken that. for that price. So, so to your, you know, I think to your point, um, 
we experience this in, in different ways in our lives. If we were a vegan household, right, the supply chain for our food may have looked very different than sort of a carnivore household. So I, th- oh, I think you do bring point. up a good point. Um, there, there, you know, the gallon of milk has always been a price that, uh, um, that a lots of folks have looked at as a way to, to track inflation. But I do think we're, you know, there's a lot more data available these days for you to establish your own personal inflation metrics, but that is a little bit different aside from developing a portfolio Interesting. Uh, of investable assets. Well, like here in America, we look at gas and oil over the years. Like, tell me right now, if, if you're an American, you've not looked at the price of gas all since you were a child, right? We think of gas and oil, you know, oil, gas, petroleum or whatever in our cars as the scarce asset, right? So when the price goes up, we're like hoarding people line up for, for, you know, hurricanes coming. But just the other day, I was talking to my friend, uh, my Saudi friend, and he was, and I was talking to him and I said, so uh, tell me about like, we were just chatting about like COVID and everything, how's it going over there? And he's, and I said, yeah, like, I'm, you know, thankful that gas prices didn't go up in, in America or whatever. And he said, listen, gas it's fucking so cheap and free here. You can go to the street corner and people give you barrels of petroleum for your car. I can send like it's so cheap and free here. We don't look at that as a scarce asset, but we don't have food. Some of my friends can't even put food on there. So what does this do? Drink the the gas, drink the oil. So like what we here look at as scarce that we have abundance of vegetables and and food. Other places it's the opposite foot. That's is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. On a micro household level and on a nation state level, you know, um, you know, the business that I work in every day has a degree of global exposure and, you know, some of the things that you hear from investors in different markets. I mean, there's certainly a lot of fiscal stimulus happening, a lot of major nations around the world. So the U.S. isn't the only one where investors and households are, are, you know, perhaps forced to think about inflation a little bit more. But but, um, the amount, you know, what our experience has been with COVID and the government response and the monetary response um, is different here in the domestic United States than in other nations. So you could look at it on a micro household level, you're a chicken eater or not, or you can look at it as um, your nation and your dependency on a commodity like yeah, maybe oil we're too dependent. or your government's, you know, monetary policy. Switching, switching gears a little bit here, you know, we're talking about um, scarcity, we're talking about inflation, we're talking about supply chains and food and being vegan. It sounds to me like everything that we're talking about has a common thread of like, we want the world to be better than we left it. We all got in, we're all born, but we all got into crypto. You could tell me whatever reason you want, but I know that deep down every person in this space, if you work or hold, or if you do anything, if you just listen to this podcast and you don't do anything else, it's because you love the earth that we live on. You love this world. Phil, you've been traveling around a lot lately, especially during COVID, trying to figure out how to make this world a better place. You've been studying uh, seaweed. You've been studying. uh, Tell me like tell me about that. Like so there are a lot of crypto folk that have said like, okay, I've uh, figured out how to make the world a better place financially now, but that's not enough. You want to like sink your teeth into like more. Definitely not enough. And if we want to talk about scarcity, I think the environment is probably the most scarce thing we have on this planet. Um, so yeah, I was fortunate enough to visit Necker Island a couple of weeks ago, and there was an ocean summit, uh, Ultramarine, hosted by Susie Mai. Um, it, it was eye-opening. I, I went on the trip to get some inspiration, but I think the biggest problem right now is our energy sources, 
Um, and it was mind-blowing how we could be carbon neutral. Could we be carbon neutral? Um, it seems to me that yes. Um, that I believe last year there was a flight from Indonesia to New York. It, it flew empty, but it flew 100% on biofuel, um, which I, I didn't know was possible. Um, so just, I, I'm very early, it's very preliminary for me, but I, I'm looking at all these other substitutes for plastics and biofuels. Sure, sure. Um, all of a sudden, it's not as scarce. Uh, it's attainable. It's attainable, yeah. Um, so it's all about perspective. And it's, you know, if, if you're a vegan, uh, coronavirus is probably easier for you than if you're a carnivore, right? So it's, it's all about perspective and, and how you see life. Um, so it's exciting. And, and to your point, it's changed. The world can be a better place. And that's why crypto is so exciting for me. Um, it's just the approach, how we do things. Um, yeah. Phil, I think it's such a great point. I, I was listening to, um, I'm sure we all listen to Elon every once in sure. a while. And, and for the most part, he's, you know, he can come across as fairly radical, regardless of what you think about his, you know, Tesla's Bitcoin allocation or anything. And uh, he was doing an interview recently, and he was talking a lot about what you just said, Phil and Charlie, how you introduced the topic of just we only have one Earth and there's nothing more scarce than that. And yeah. um, it, 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 and we're, we're it just also to tie this back to the investing world too. I mean, outside of outside of crypto and Bitcoin at an institutional level and beyond that, like one of the large thematics has been ESG in, in investing, environmental, mm. social and governance mm. investing. So, mm. um, uh, you know, we're, we're seeing it in, in represented in capital markets as well. Um, but there, to your point, there's something really kind of core at humanity mm. around honoring scarcity. And, um, and at times it's, it's confusing and troubling how investors from more of a capitalistic standpoint can honor that thematic, but on an, in our everyday lifestyles and sort of how we think about the environment that that thematic isn't always as honored. That is a very interesting perspective. That's a very interesting way of looking at it. We have to honor scarcity. And that's yeah, like we, we put our money where our mouth is, but we don't like always put our mouth where our mouth is, right? Like, right. like the, you know, we if if the earth is an investable asset, right, in 100%. some way, shape, or form, it may not trade, you know, E A R T H or something like that, right? But but to some degree, tokenize it's an the asset earth. that well, carbon tokens, I mean, carbon yeah. tokens, yeah, energy tokens, you can you can tokenize anything, anything. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not even proposing that per se, but like, if we just bring it back to, you're going like, to see like headlines, fidelities, tokenizing <laughs> everything, you know, he's like, I'm not proposing that. Definitely, We're cut this yeah, part definitely out. not see that, no, but, 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 you know, aside from the fact that, yeah, you can tokenize a lot of things, the, the, um, I think it is worth pointing out that, that, treasuring scarce assets and the value of scarce assets is something that in capital markets, and we can just, I think, label that a capitalistic framework, um, is honored uh, and and is considered fundamental. Um, and I think in society, uh, particularly in America, like I don't know how fundamental that that is. I think you maybe have a lot of people, uh, well-intentioned people who have portfolios and investment theses that honor scarcity, but maybe on their day-to-day -day life, don't do the things that honor Earth as a scarce, scarce mm -hmm. asset. Good point. The more the work that goes in to, like, for lack of a better term, digging out that scarce asset from the Earth, and that could be anything, the more treasured. Let's look at your child. Think about the work that goes involved in, in having a child. 
That is the ultimate scarce asset. Uh, think about uh, like this show, even your business, your your partner, you know, your 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 wife, husband, your uh, uh, children, your your parents. Like, just look at that. They're scarce. Your friends, you you invest and you build friendships. They're scarce. So now, today, our lovely president is going to be printing two trillion dollars more of this asset that we were born and raised to believe is scarce. So let me ask you a question that I'm scared about. We printed an insane amount of money in 2001. We printed an insane amount of money in 2008. We're printing an insane amount of money in 2020. It's just the amount of like almost $10 trillion in the span of like 20 something years. I was born, we're all, we were all born before the 2000s. So the money, the pre-2000 dollar was so different than the dollar of today. It was scarce back then. It was something that you would save. What happens now? Like put on your fidelity hat for a second, Steve. Like what happens now? What are we looking at 10 years from now from, from fiat currency perspective? There's a lot of smart researchers at Fidelity that properly wear Fidelity hats that probably have much better answers than I. So yeah. I'll just take it just kind of my pers per personal or your knowledge. personal view, really. Yeah. Uh, I think a first off, not to come off high and holy here, but it is worth pointing out that there are there is a perhaps more than ever a massive population of people in America and around the world where money or fiat currency is still a very scarce asset. If you can't put food on your table, the dollar is a scarce asset regardless of how much money is printed. And in fact, not to defend the monetary policy, although I do think that there are uh, small businesses and households that are in dire need, like yeah. that is almost precisely why this stimulus exists because we have a wealth divide in America, more perhaps more divided in, than ever. And there are people where the dollar is extremely scarce. So then you look on the flip side of that, uh, wealthier folks um, who have an excess of dollars and they say, and the response is, well, lots of dollars were issued and hopefully appropriated to households and small businesses where it where the, it is perceived as scarce. Whether we look at M2 money supply and think differently, it was scarce at that micro level, right? Just going back to this point about my world and the outer world could be different at times. Um, then the the wealthier folks, folks who have who, who the dollar is not scarce for, are forced to form a different investment thesis to um, to protect their capital. So, you know, I kind of look at it. This is like it's kind of like Bitcoin. It can it's a, you're permitted to think of it in any way sure. you want. You want to think of it as a great technology. You want to think of it as an economic play. And I think you know if the the government is going ahead and 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 print money and it's well intended to go to individuals and households um, that based on your particular situation, your household situation, your corporate situation, and then you are forced to think about, is this asset scarce to me? Are we deprived? Are we in a, a sort of a poverty-like situation? And therefore I'm in need of it, or, or am I in excess of it? So therefore I have to cling to different stores of value. Phil, I wanna hear your response. Well put, Steve. Uh, very, very well put, well. Steve. I don't know, I always wonder, what, what, where are we gonna be in 10 to 20 years? And how will blockchain have a role in our economic system? Um, 
it, it, to me, it's scary when we print $2 trillion worth of money that I don't know how we're going to repay that. Um, so it's hard to answer, to be honest. Um, the, the problem is I see it like to take, how are we going to repay that? That's exactly the coin. And to take like Steven's thought, uh, I think we're trying to, to put all the thinking into one bucket. And that thinking is we shouldn't be printing money. I don't, I don't, so like, there could have been credits or it could have been done differently. Exactly what I was, exactly my point. It's the mechanisms. Right. Um, Cause right now that money can just start flowing out back to the rich at any moment. That two, you think that $2 trillion, how much of that 2 trillion is actually hitting the people that need those dollars? Supermarkets. Probably none of them. I hate to say it, but the Canadian way of just mailing checks to people every month is better than our $2 trillion package. $1,400 worth of checks to if you're under 75K a year. Like, yeah. I don't know. I so, just don't. That's a lot of money. So I'm, I'm going to provide just, a, by the way, I, I, I'm going to provide just an alternative perspective just for the sake of yeah, please. argument here. I know for a fact a number of small businesses, startups, crypto companies right. that, that in the earlier phases of COVID that received PPP to keep employees retained, to keep them on staff, that without that yeah. would have laid off or had to shut down their business. Um, many of these uh, startups are ones that we all appreciate and not, like not everyone knows every, every company's sort of, you know, capital situation. So, so, you know, those companies have accountants though. They have bookkeepers. My mother-in-law still can't collect unemployment, still on the phone yesterday for over a year. What's going on there? Yeah, I, I think I, I, when you take something as massive as an issuance of trillions of dollars, um, uh, you know, and these bills are how many hundreds or yeah, thousands pages, of pages. Crazy. Like, and we, we have an unfortunate system where um, there, are, there are so many policies that, you know, both sides of the house are really looking to introduce and, and they, you know, we use these times to try and introduce perhaps new progressive policies. Raising unemployment. And, and, and at times yeah. we like, we, we're not able to simplify things to your point of just, let's just simply get it down to issuing this, this money to these people or these businesses. Look, it, it's a really tough job. Like, I think sometimes right. it's very easy to complain about, about the government and whether they're, you know, many, I think, you know, many, um, this is the uh, venting show. Uh, we uh, vent yeah, our frustrations. I, I, I'm not really complaining. I just think it's a desperate move. Um, I get that America has way more population. I think it's a populist move too. So what's the alternative? What's the alternative? You're Phil, you're there. You're at the money printer. You pull the plug. (laughs) And it's like, all right, Phil, now go to another room. Communist approach. Give uh, food stamps. I think, (laughs) I I think, yeah, I honestly think if you're talking about radical, don't try to do something radical in a capitalistic way. Do it in a radical way. So uh, you're talking about like needing to save us all. Let's look at student debt. Let's look at all debt. Let's look at the people that like, where do they need it the most? Start from the bottom and work their way up. You look at that. Everyone is like, yeah, but it's going to be like the wealthy people don't get involved. Well, wealthy people have problems too. They have tax related questions. Wealthy people have, I don't know. I'm not super well, you know, they, they know all their problems, but, uh, there's a way to do it. I I guess I don't know the solution 
but I can point out the problem. Like, yeah, a couple of yeah. problems that we saw is I, I know a handful of companies that didn't necessarily need the relief. And when they received it, they bought Bitcoin with it. Um, and Mark Cuban himself said... I'm a big fan of that. Be, well, to what degree, right? Some companies took out a relief and then bought their own stock back. Mark Cuban said that should be illegal, and I agree with him. Um, it's a very difficult problem to solve, and I understand the desperate approach to it, but, um, but those problems are bad, right? Um, so if we don't look at it as a problem, though, let's just look at it as this money needs to be created in, in that, like, the term created is, like, a, a tough term to use, but this money needs to be put into circulation because because the economy, but not just the economy, the the recovery has been too K-shaped. And in order to get back that middle class, this is what needs to happen. Uh, five years from now, has the creative and manufacturing and technological power of the United States in five years from now, are we able to actually like bridge the gap of like, so like, are we able to bridge the gap of how much money is now in circulation be and the increase in, in like growth and GDP of our country? Has it leveled itself out? Because if not, then you're going to see a continuance of a crazy consumer uh, price increase. And that's when the guy who needs the dollar the most is going to, is going to, is going to have a hard time. Yeah. And, and that, that guy or that household you know, maybe it's a lower middle or middle class household and all likely to ha has a pension. Yeah. That pension is invested. And and what we do at sort Social of a more security, macroeconomic yeah. level could Im impact that portfolio as well. Um, but, you know, the fact is, is this is unprecedented. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, that word is used so much in the past hmm. year or so, but just to use it um, in terms like from a a monetary policy standpoint, this this truly, truly is unprecedented. And I think, you know, Charlie, you are right. Really the, is. the what we need to see, I think, um, is job growth and uh, like checks to households. I think we all would agree yeah. is a short term fix. Of course. Right. Like as as magical and powerful as it could be, it, this is a short term fix. Where is our country and our economy going and how do we set up a framework uh, for more organic growth, not just government stimulus, stimulated growth? Mm -hmm. um, and I do believe like there's a lot in this stimulus plan that is around that. You know, I think the Biden administration like has been very vocal about that. I'm I I barely find the time to like read a fiction novel at night, let alone um, the entire bill. Uh, yeah. But I will go by like what's been shared publicly from a policy standpoint that some of this is like, this is not just about direct checks and sure money is not always appropriate in the same way, but it is also about, and perhaps the most powerful thing is a stimulus of, of jobs and jobs that represent the future of, of our economy. Jobs. And one of the, the, the best impacts that the crypto community has has given the world back one of the best gifts that Satoshi Nakamoto has given the world is the ability to give millions of people around the world jobs today to bring their families out of poverty to work in our amazing industry myself included Steve Phil all of us get to get to live and and put food on our family's table because 
because of Satoshi and, and Bitcoin and this whole crypto industry. Thank you guys so much for taking the time and coming on Untold Stories today. This, this was such an amazing show. 